I don't know what you think about Jonah. Um, you, might, you might never have read the whole story. Let me encourage you, if you haven't, um, go home tonight. It's only 48 verses. Uh, it's not that long. Um, you might think Jonah is just a story about a fish, a whale. We just met the whale at the end of our Bible reading today. That's um, not just a story about a man and a fish, a great big fish. It's actually a story about all men, I think, and, and a great big God. Uh, and sometimes I think when we hear the story of Jonah, we, we actually just think about fish and we never think about God. And so I want us to spend four weeks thinking about God, thinking about his plans, and thinking about hard about how this story of Jonah um, kind of shows us what God's plans are in the world and how we can be involved in them. I think that's what Jonah is all about. So I'm going to pray again. I'm going to pray that God will help us understand his word as we look at it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, as Anna said again, that we can meet together, that we can hear you speak to us through your word in the Bible, that we know that your spirit is with us, helping us, Uh, to become more like the people that you want us to be, not just as individuals, but as a group, as your church that has a huge role to play in this world. So I just pray that tonight you help us get on board with that. Amen. Well, I thought I'd start um, just by telling you a little bit about my first year of uni. It was a little while ago now. Added up 12 years. There you go, 12 years since I was young first year. Um, I thought I'd tell you that when I was the first year, I was actually pretty quiet about my Christian faith. Uh, I wasn't that bold. In fact, wearing a CU t-shirt in a place like the SU would have scared me. That would have been really full on. Uh, I would have been afraid about what my friends thought about me. Um, When I was a first year at uni, I... I just kind of wanted to fit in. I just wanted to make friends. I just wanted to belong. If you know what I mean. But there was something to it, you know. Because I was a Christian, there was kind of this tension. Uh, my minister, I still remember him saying it, he used to always say, um, should be able to remember it now, shouldn't I? He used to always say, if Jesus saved you, then the least you can do is tell other people about him. So I always kind of had this running in the back of my mind. You know, if Jesus saved me, then I should be able to tell other people about him. But I just found that so scary. And it worked out. This is the way it worked out with me as a first year was because I wasn't very kind of bold about standing up for Jesus, very open about my Christianity. I ended up kind of having these two friendship groups. I had my Aggie friends because I studied agriculture. And I had my Christian friends because I went to the CU. And the two never really crossed over that much. Um, there was one mate of mine, Dave. Uh, he was my, one of my Aggie friends. Um, if Aggie's a new word for you, because I studied agriculture, that's what we used to call each other. Um, I asked my friend Dave once, because we had an event on, I want to see you events, and I, I asked my friend Dave, I said, Dave, do you want to come? told him what the topic was. And I kid you not, that was the last time he ever spoke to me. Uh, he had something against Christianity. He had something against God. And we just couldn't be friends after that. 
calling today. And you know, that hurt. That kind of made me go back into my shell a little bit more. Um, I'd started to be accepted by these guys, they were my friends, and then I do one thing, step up for Jesus, a little thing like invite someone, and that whole group fell apart. And it really felt like I lost out. I couldn't work that one out as a young Christian. I wonder if you've ever had anything like that happen. Maybe you've you've stood up for Jesus, you've said something in a group, and you've been ridiculed for it. People have kind of mocked you, they've teased you, and it's kind of made you afraid to speak up again. Maybe that hasn't happened to you, but maybe that's just your fear, and so me telling my story about Dave just kind of solidifies it and goes, well, I think I'll just keep my head down in the future. Uh, maybe you've been at uni for a while. Maybe you've, you've kind of been like I was and you've got these kind of two friendship groups going and you just kind of feel a weird tension and you're not sure what to do about it. Uh, you, you really like your friends and you just don't want it to be broken up. Uh, you don't want to risk it. That's a pretty legit feeling, I reckon. That kind of fear of losing out, that fear of losing our friendships. Um, And I don't think it's just about our friendships with people that we have in class. I think sometimes it's also with these kind of friendships here. Sometimes we so love our Christian friendships that we don't want to invite other people in. I don't know if you ever have that as a feeling. We just get get quite comfortable as Christians, I think, and, and I think that's such a blessing to have good Christian friendships. We should be so thankful to God for that have a Christian peer group that we can go through uni with together, something we should be so thankful for. But I think there's a danger in it at the same time. There's a danger that we can so love this little group that we, we worry that if we invite someone else in, then our group will change and it just won't be as comfortable anymore. So we kind of fear losing out on that end as well. I don't know if these are the sort of things that you wrestle with when you go to uni, when you go to class. Um, I, knew, I know that I wrestled with them a lot when I was a young first year, second year, third year. And today, I still wrestle with these things. Sticking up for Jesus, it's hard. Why? Well, because we like our kind of comfortable groups. And we fear that if we stick up for Jesus, stand up for him, we fear that we might lose out on that. And this is why I think Jonah is so helpful. I think Jonah actually helps us put that fear of losing our comfort in our friendship groups, in the group that we belong to, actually helps us put that fear into perspective. I think God teaches us a huge lesson here in this first chapter of Jonah. God teaches us through Jonah's experience that God's people are not called just to kind of exist in comfortable groups. This first chapter teaches us that God's people are actually meant to go out of their comfort zone. They're actually called to risk it all for the sake of the others, for their salvation. We're supposed to risk it because, well, Jesus risked it for us. That's what we'll be saying tonight. See, when you look at Jonah, 
And we're going to do a lot of looking at Jonah, not physically, but through the text. When you look at Jonah, he's actually just like us. Jonah is one of God's people. He's doing pretty well. He's living pretty comfortably. And he's happy being one of God's people. He's happy enjoying God's blessing. Until, that is, God comes and speaks to him and calls him to action. Calls him to an action that maybe he's not so ready for. We see here in verse 1, if you've got your Bible in front of you, God calls Jonah to take his message to Nineveh. Calls him to stand up, get out of his comfort zone and preach. Go to that nation. And what does Jonah do? Well, he runs in the opposite direction. If you've got that map on the back of the little um, card there, you can see instead of heading northeast, he goes to the sea and he gets on a boat and he heads west. He runs in the opposite direction. I wonder if you ever do anything like that. You're hanging pretty comfortably down at the sea, you're just chatting with your mates, sitting on the lounges, and then you know something comes up in conversation. Something about Christianity and you know, maybe someone watched the Bible on TV last night. Have you guys been watching the Bible? I kind of love it, right? It's got ninja angels. <laughs> How good are those ninja angels? There's a lot of violence in it, but maybe, you know, someone is talking about that. I think, oh, that's all rubbish. It's not an uncommon you know, conversation to have these days. Someone sees that and they just bag out Christianity completely. What's your reaction at that point? It's often fear. What was that? What did you Violent? You were being a ninja angel, were you, Chris? Leave it. Love them. Love them. I don't reckon it's love. I reckon sometimes for me, often for me, it's fear. I sit there and I kind of just get uncomfortable. I don't know what I'm going to say. I kind of go, well, you know, what would I say? And this is me now. Not me as a first year. I still struggle with this. I kind of fear getting ridiculed, getting laughed at, getting hurt. Often I just want to get out of there. I want to run, like Jonah. We're just like Jonah sometimes, I think. But Jonah's a bit different to us. Quite a bit different, really. He's an Israelite. We're Australians. Unless you're an Israelite. Any Israelites here? No. That's a shame. (laughs) He lived in the 8th century. Any 8th century people? 8th century BC, not AD. We live 21st it, BC? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Jonah doesn't have laptops, he doesn't have iPhones, doesn't have any of that sort of stuff. But like us, he's actually living a pretty comfortable life. You don't really see this in the first verse. You have to do a little bit of unpacking of the 8th century in the Bible. I'm going to help you do that now. Um, Israel at this time in their history... Uh, was doing pretty well for themselves. Uh, They've got political stability. They're pretty prosperous. They're not at war with any other nations, which is kind of rare for them, if you've been watching the Bible series. Uh, Really, like, in their kind of comfortable nation, it's secure, they're a bit like Australians. A bit like Bendagonians. Israelites back in the 8th century, they would have gone to work, gone to uni if they had it. They ate pretty well. They spent time with their mates. 
The only really negative thing you could say about Israel in the 8th century BC was that they kind of put God on the back bench, which isn't good for God's people. Uh, they'd moved away from following God and they just kind of got on with doing life without him. A little bit like Australians, isn't it? Of course, back in Israel then, like there is here now, there was always those people that would want to speak God's word in. There was always, you know, like we have churches and preachers and things like that. They had prophets like Elijah and Elisha, people who would want to call God's people and other people back to repentance, tell people about God. There was always people like that. But the majority of people in Jonah's day in Israel didn't really care that much. Just kind of assumed, looked around life, thought everything was okay. And Jonah, well, he's caught right in the middle of this. We don't know a lot of the specifics about Jonah. We don't know how old he is. We don't know what colour hair he had. It's not really important. What we do know is that he was a son of a guy called Amittai. Amittai was his dad. And this is helpful because Jonah, the son of Amittai, is mentioned in one other place in the Bible, in 2 Kings chapter 14. And it's in that passage that we hear that Jonah had actually given a previous message. Jonah had been called in 2 Kings 14 to give a different prophecy, a message to the king. That message was, go to the king, evil king Jeroboam, he was quite a sinful king, reigned for 40 years in Israel. Go to that king and tell him that Israel's borders will enlarge. Israel's going to get bigger. It's a nice message to give, isn't it? It's a bit like going to the Premier of Victoria and saying, Victoria's going to get bigger. It's going to jump the Murray and it's going to take on some of New South Wales. <laughs> it's not going to happen. But it did back then. Israel got bigger. Points to them being more comfortable, more secure. It was an easy message for Jonah to give, wasn't it? Um, be a little bit like you coming up to me and saying, Steve, see you's going to grow to a thousand people. It's not that confrontational. I'd be stoked about that. Um, but it kind of points to the fact that Israel back then, again, was quite comfortable, quite secure in who they were. But it also points to a problem. The problem is that in the 8th century, God's people had forgotten their purpose. See, Israel was never meant to exist just as a comfortable group of people who enjoyed God's blessing. That was never their calling. They weren't meant to be just a group that had strong borders. God never chose them for that. No, when you think back to when God first began Israel with Abraham in Genesis 12, Father Abraham, the father of Israel, God said back then that Abraham would have as many descendants as the stars. That's a lot. A lot of people. From that one guy, Abraham, that Hebrew back then, this nation of Israel would come. And that nation would grow to be very big. And God would bless it. Why? Well, not so it can just be blessed, but so it would be a blessing to all the other nations. That's what God promised. God saved them, God chose them, so that his blessing and salvation would go to them, but flow through them. 
and to the nations of the world. That's what Israel was always on about. That's what being God's people is always on about. Save to bless the nations. So when Jonah, here in verse 1, gets this call to take God's message to the nations, he should have been on board with that. But he's not, is he? No, Jonah's just kind of happy being blessed. He doesn't get the fact that God's plan is bigger than just Israel. So when God tells them to go and preach to Nineveh, where he should be kind of overjoyed that God's sending his word there, because God's word is always a blessing, instead of being overjoyed by that, he runs in fear. I wonder if when you first read Jonah, when we had it read out today, um, if you kind of got the shock of verse 3. It's a shocking start to this kind of book. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 are quite normal for a prophetic book in the Bible. Um, God speaks, he commissions his prophet. The word of the Lord came and he said this to this guy and generally it goes... And so he went, and he took the message. This but there shouldn't be there. Verse 3, we have, but Jonah rose and fled from God's presence. That's not how it's supposed to be. It's meant to say, and he went, not but he fled. It's a little bit like, I don't know if you guys watch X Factor or Australian Idol or one of those other, there's so many talent shows around at the moment. I quite like X Factor at the moment, it was on last night. And um, I don't know if you've ever seen an episode like this where you know, they do that behind the scenes, you know, the, the interview with the person and, you know, yeah, I've been, I've been practising singing since I was 15 and uh, they're only 16 sort of thing, but, you know, <laughs> I've been practising all my life and this is the greatest moment of my whole life and, you know, these people are just so wrapped up and they've got this big build-up and um, every now and then they do it. Generally they're good, right? Generally they have a build-up and you go, they're going to be good and you're expecting but every now and then someone gets up and they're just terrible. They just sound like a walrus barking. Like their, their singing is horrendous. And they do it just for entertainment value. You've got to feel sorry for the person. But it's shocking, isn't it? It's jarring. You know, that's not what I was expecting. And that's, that's what it is here with Jonah. If we were, were you know, just normally reading this, if we were used to reading what, you know, through the Minor Prophets or something like that, this verse 3 would shock us. God's prophet, God's person is not meant to run from God's call in disobedience. He's not meant to run in fear. But I kind of feel for Jonah a little bit. I don't know about you. Um, And you start to understand maybe why he had so much fear um, when you start to understand what Nineveh was like. God God told Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of this... Um, big nation called Assyria, which was up in the northeast. And, you know, it was a little bit bigger than Bendigo. Nineveh had 120,000 people, so just a little bit bigger than us. And Nineveh was very powerful at the time. It wasn't only powerful, though, it was actually quite a brutal nation. Uh, The Assyrians, the Ninevites, had actually, by this time, you can read about it in history, they'd gained a reputation for their disgusting war practices. When they took over a town uh, in battle, in war, 
Um, they would often take the survivors out and impale them on stakes in front of the town. The leaders would often chop people's heads off and wear them around as a necklace, as like some sort of victory thing. This is the Ninevites, and Jonah knows this. These are a sinful, wild, worldly bunch. And Jonah gets, got, gets told to go and preach to them. What would he be thinking? They'll kill me, Jonah would have thought. If I go and preach to them, I'll be crucified. So, verse 3, what do we see Jonah do? Well, he runs. He runs from God. Instead of rising and going northeast, he goes down to Joppa, he boards a ship to Tarshish, and he flees from God. And we ask the question, what's God going to do about this? Is he just going to let Jonah go? How does God respond? Jonah runs in fear and God, well, God responds fearfully, doesn't he? He thought the Ninevites were scary with their power, with their might. Have a look at what God does by his power and his might just in these next few verses. As Jonah boards the ship, with these pagan sailors, these guys that worship other gods. Verse 4, God hurls a great wind over the sea. A mighty storm comes upon the sea. So powerful is this storm that it says there the ship is about to break up. I don't know if you've ever been out to sea um, when you've just had a massive swirl. It's scary. Uh, The sea is powerful, deadly. And these seasoned sailors, what's their reaction? They become overwhelmingly afraid. This is a mighty storm. These sailors, they start calling out to to their gods. But nothing happens. The boat is being tossed to and fro. They start picking up the cargo that they were meant to be taking somewhere and, and they start hurling it overboard. Whatever fear... Jonah had in preaching to Nineveh, it would have felt minuscule to the fear that the sailors felt at this time. They were fearing their lives, fearing death. The ship is about to fall apart. And what's Jonah doing in all of this? He's taking a nap. He's sleeping. He's made himself comfortable, hasn't he? He doesn't have a care in the world for these people around him. The captain comes down, verse 6. What are you doing? You can imagine him yelling that guy. What are you doing? We're about to die and you're sleeping. How can you be asleep? Can't you see that we need your God, he says? Get up. Call to your God and perhaps we may not perish. See the lesson here? The lesson for us? Jonah, I think, like some of us, sleeps while the world around him is perishing. Verse 7, the story continues. The sailors gathered together. They cast lots. They rolled dice to see if they can work out who's responsible for this storm. The lot that falls on Jonah, they, they drag him out of the cabin. What have you done? Look at all these questions. What have you done, they ask. Who are you? Why is this happening? 
They're yelling over this kind of crashing of the waves. And finally, in verse 9, Jonah stands up. Finally, he says, verse 9, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And as soon as he says this, the sailors, they become more afraid. They look around and they see the power of Jonah's God. And they fear him. They ask, what shall we do? Quiet sea, just quiet this storm. What shall we do to turn your God's anger away? And Jonah's response, hurl me into the depths of the sea. Jonah tells them that the only way to calm God's anger in that storm, God's anger at his sinful disobedience, is to cast him into the depths of the sea. And the sailors, well, they react to this, and they're not so sure about that. I mean, just having Jonah on the boat meant that this storm came. What's going to happen if they kill this guy, Jonah? What would happen then? So what do they do? Well, they, they try to row the boat to shore. They try to save their own lives. They try to save Jonah's life, but it's no use. And finally, when the storm becomes even more fierce, they agree to throw him in. Verse 9, I think, is the turning point in the story. In verse 9, we finally see Jonah stand up and admit who he is. He says, he says something surprising here, actually. He doesn't say, I'm an Israelite. It's what we would expect. He says, I'm a Hebrew. This is unique in the Bible. It's a very rare use of this expression doesn't say I'm an Israelite. He says, I'm a Hebrew. And it makes us think back to the first Hebrew. It makes us think back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, who was called out of his place of comfort, called to go and obey God, to leave the comfort of his homeland and become a nation that would bless all other nations. By Jonah identifying himself as a Hebrew, it seems he's finally got on board with what God wants to happen through his people. Admitting he's a Hebrew means that he actually has woken up from his slumber. He's realised that being one of God's people is not about being comfortable in your own country or in your own group. No, being one of God's people means being a blessing to the outsiders taking God's message to the nations. The problem, though, for Jonah is that it all seems a bit late, doesn't it? I mean, just as he finally gets on board with God's plan, he's about to get chucked overboard by the sailors. But Jonah, I think, to his credit, is willing to accept his lot. He disobeyed God, he sinned, and he knows that he deserves death. In his disobedience, he gets... He actually gets what he wanted in the beginning. Remember verse 3? Jonah wanted to flee from the Lord's presence. He's going to get it. He's going to be thrown into the depths of the sea. Jonah's sinful disobedience, like our disobedience, whatever form it may take, our sin, it leads to separation from God, out of God's presence. Literally thrown off the lifeboat 
and cast into the depths. And Jonah here, he says, I deserve it. I disobeyed God. He admits his sin and his guilt. He accepts his condemnation. Throw me into the sea. It's because of me, he says, that this great tempest has come. Something we all need to do to admit that our sin deserves death. That our disobedience leads to being cast out from God's presence. But more than that, do you notice here what the sailors do at this moment? As this Hebrew, as Jonah stands there in the midst, as he says he's going to take the rap, he'll be thrown in. After they realise that they can't save themselves by their own efforts, and they raise Jonah up to send him to his death, they actually start putting their own sin and guilt on him. Have a look there at verse 14. Verse 14, they lay it on him. They call out to the Lord and they say, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood. See what the sailors do here? They don't want to murder Jonah, but more than that, they also don't want to be held responsible for Jonah's death. So they put their guilt on him. And so Jonah, being thrown into the sea, becomes a sacrifice for them as he's thrown into the depths, as this Hebrew is cast out. All their sin and guilt falls on him. The Hebrew dies so that the pagans can live. Points us to Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus, who unlike Jonah, was never disobedient. Jesus who accepted God's call to come from the comforts, the heights of heaven to enter this sinful mess of a world of ours. Jesus who did not fear even death did not let that stop him from saving his enemies. See, it was for us that Jesus left his heavenly home as he came to preach repentance as the way to enter the kingdom of God. It was for us that he came and it was for us that he was nailed to that cross, that that Hebrew was raised up and all our sin and guilt was cast on him. That he, the innocent Hebrew, was overwhelmed to the point of death by the storm of God's judgment and anger at our sin. And it's because of Jesus' sacrifice that I think we're supposed to respond like the sailors do in verse 16. As they see the sacrifice of the one hurled into the sea, as they see that that sacrifice calms the storm of God's anger, they fear the Lord exceedingly. And what do they do? They sacrifice to him. They vow to him their allegiance. See, they live and we live because the Hebrew died for us. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian person, uh, if you've never asked Jesus to take your sins away, if you've never come to him saying that you're sorry for just kind of getting on living a comfortable life and ignoring God, 
Can I encourage you to be like the sailors here? And recognize who God is. He's the powerful one who's angry at sin. He's the one who owns the sea and the dry land. He made it. And he's the one that controls all the blessings and all the storms. He's the one who's deeply angered about our sin, but yet he's the same one who in his gracious love sent his own son to take that penalty for us. His own son who was overwhelmed to the point of death so that we can be forgiven. If you've never known that before, if that's new to you, I'd love to talk more about that. Come and speak to me tonight or speak to this friend who brought you. That'd be great. If you are a Christian here tonight, and I think there's lots of us here who are, I think this ending of chapter 1 leaves us with a huge challenge. The challenge is to work out who we're more like. Are we more like Jonah at the beginning of the story? Caught up in the comforts of the world? Afraid to make a stand, sleeping while the world perishes? Or are you like the sailors at the end of the chapter? The sailors who were afraid initially at God's kind of stormy anger, but have come to see who God is. And he's the God who saves. After the sailors see the sacrificial death of the Hebrew save them, they fear God. But it's not a fear of being afraid. They're actually in awe of this God, who in his power and might graciously saves. At the end, they worship and they praise God. The challenge for us, I think, is to let this knowledge of God's grace, of this salvation, sink into our lives so much so that it actually frees us from our fears of standing up for Jesus. See, what we see when we see the death of Jesus for us is that we don't belong to this world anymore. We belong to him. We belong to him who died for us who took on the torment of God's anger for us and who has won us a home of eternal comfort to come. The challenge for us is to get on board with what God is doing in the world. God is calling people into his kingdom through the words of people like us, people who take a message, a message of salvation and grace. He calls us to go out. That's what it means to be one of God's people. He calls us to tell people about Jesus so that they too may not perish. We're called not to fear losing our kind of comfort now, but to actually find joy in winning people in, in seeing them being saved. I told you a story about my friend Dave at the start. I thought I'd wrap this up with a story about another mate. A friend of mine called Will. Uh, a bit later that year, um, I invited my friend Will to see you. 
Uh, and to my astonishment, Will came. Oh, I didn't think he would. I kind of risked it again. But he came to an event. And there at that event, he heard about Jesus' sacrifice. And he thought, that was interesting. So he kept coming to see you events. And after a while, he decided that he wanted to belong to Jesus. And that's just amazing. That just brings me so much joy just to think that Will is now part of God's heavenly kingdom. Because someone like me risked it, risked a friendship. I didn't say anything profound. I said, do you want to come? And he did. I wonder if we're willing to risk it. That's what we pray for, isn't it? That God would use people like us. I think we need to pray that our fears will subside as we see the grace of our God who has died for us, who saved us, who came and spoke to us. Let that sink in so that we will be people who would be compelled to share, not because we feel like we have to, but because we want to, because we know how good our Saviour is and how wonderful it is to belong to him. So will you get on board with that? Will you get on board with that this semester? Here at La Trobe, we've got Mission Week coming up in week five. I think we need to be praying for our friends who aren't Christian yet, praying that they would come in week five to our Mission Week. Start praying for people tonight. Start speaking to them. If you're not ready for that, keep revisiting the cross until you're so wrapped up in belonging to Jesus that you don't fear losing out on the comforts of this world. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of your sacrifice for us sacrifice of your own son who gave up himself so that we could belong to you to one another and to your eternal kingdom Father I pray that you would work in us by your spirit to help us have no fear of mankind and losing of comforts now that we wouldn't fear being ridiculed by our friends or cut off from them but that we would just be on board with your plans trusting you as we speak your message and as you save your people Amen